I think that all of us have very specific magic to do in the world and it doesn't have anything to do with what we look like. And the sooner we can repair or work to repair that relationship with our bodies, I think the easier it is for us to live lives that feel nourishing and full that aren't focused on trying to be smaller. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am thrilled to be chatting with Chrissy King. Chrissy's new book, The Body Liberation Project, is out this week. Yay for book launching. It is a really incredible mix of memoir and cultural analysis and an exploration of the intersection of racism and diet culture. I strongly encourage you to go out and get it. If you're not familiar with Chrissy, she is an author, speaker, educator, and former strength coach with a passion for creating a diverse and inclusive wellness industry. She empowers individuals to stop shrinking, start taking up space, and use their energy to create their specific magic in the world. With degrees in social justice, and sociology from Marquette University, Chrissy merges her passion for social justice with her passion for fitness to inspire members of the wellness industry to create spaces that allow individuals from all backgrounds to feel seen, welcomed, affirmed, and celebrated. Chrissy is doing such vital work in the wellness industry and for all of us with bodies in general. So I know you're going to love this conversation. Here's Chrissy, but first a quick break. Okay, so I want to quickly pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you are a regular listener, you have heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books in Cold Spring, New York, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, the Burnt Toast Bookshop is not a real brick-and-mortar bookshop yet, anyway. But it is its own official section over on splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast or in Burnt Toast essays and newsletters. This includes every author I've ever interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to, yes, Chrissy King, who you're about to hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. So if you ever find yourself listening and think, I wish there was more I could learn about this, the Burnt Toast Bookshop has you covered. And if you pre-order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can then use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of any title in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get the book signed with any inscription you want by me. To be clear, this is not an affiliate income deal. Burnt Toast is still 100% subscriber supported, but it is a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community and to get yourself a signed copy of Fat Talk plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we'll keep updating the shop so this will be a standing offer. Just click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com forward slash burnt toast bookstore. Thanks so much for supporting independent anti-diet journalism and independent bookstores. My name is Chrissy King. I'm originally from the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin. I've been in Brooklyn for the past three years. I worked a corporate job for a very long time and then became a fitness professional, worked in the fitness industry. And during the course of that, started writing and talking about the need for more diversity, inclusion, anti-racism in the wellness industry, and talking a lot about my own 
body image journey, which has led me to the work that I'm doing now. So now I'm primarily a writer, an educator, and I still do a lot of my work within the wellness industry. And we are here to celebrate your new book, The Body Liberation Project, which I just got to read a few days before we chatted. The book is just wonderful. It's so smart and thoughtful. And I really loved how you weave your personal story together with all the larger issues that you're grappling with. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this and especially how you decided to use your personal story in the larger context. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words about the book. I'm so excited for it. I went to college for social welfare and justice. And so social justice and issues around race and white supremacy have kind of always been at the core of whatever work I was doing in whatever capacity. And so when I got into fitness, I saw that so many of those issues were unaddressed in the fitness industry, especially prior to like, you know, George Floyd. I always say that's like the market which people in the wellness industry started talking about these issues. I think to folks outside of this world, those two issues, like those two worlds feel so disconnected. I just wondered if you could connect the dots a little more there and talk about why that particular event. Yeah, so I think about George Floyd and that moment in history, that moment in time a lot, because prior to George Floyd, I was writing articles about, you know, anti-racism and DEI and the need for that in wellness. I was talking about the impact of racism on health of Black folks in particular, real health impacts, real issues, and why in the wellness industry, if the goal is to help people be well, we have to be talking about all these other issues, right? And prior to George Floyd, people just weren't as interested in the conversation, didn't understand the place of talking about these issues related to wellness. I mean, some people, but generally speaking, the larger population in the wellness and fitness industry did not see why that was necessary and didn't even really want to address it. And so when George Floyd happened, it was a very interesting turning point. And I still don't know when I think through it, what was so different about that event in time, because again, George Floyd is one of many situations that have occurred over the years. And so I don't know if it was because it was also in the height of the pandemic and people were largely at home and less distracted by life. Obviously, the video went viral and was shown all over the globe, actually. And so I don't know why that situation changed things, but that is a situation in which I felt like people in the wellness space were like, oh, racism is a real issue that's affecting people. That is also having an impact on people's health. And it's something that we should be talking about Mm -hmm. in ways that people just weren't interested in having the conversations before. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, that was a good thing because it opened up a lot of discussion. And then, you know, now we're nearly three years after that. And I don't know how much of an impact it had in actual practice. It was like a weird time because it was like, wow, I'm glad that people are really willing to have this conversation now. And on the flip side, this is really disheartening that we had to have something of this extent happen for people to start acknowledging that it was important. It should not have taken that for people to reckon with this. And also, there was a lot of very performative awareness. And I remember at the time watching folks like you and Jessica Jones and Wendy Lopez and Jessica Wilson. I mean, you all were inundated with like, interview requests, like article requests, like, you know, like, please talk to us about this. And I just remember thinking, like, this is not 
the way. This is not a fair ask of these women who have been doing this work for so long who should be honored for that and are now being asked in this time of grief to be, like, saving us all. There was a weird energy. Yeah. I just want to name that that was a weird energy. It was a weird energy because, you know, again, on one hand, I'm like, oh, great. I'm happy people are willing to have these conversations. But there was like a lot of collective grief and trauma, right? And so you're right. It's like I'm being inundated with all of these requests and a very much a sense of urgency from people, right? Like right. we need this right now. Right now. We have to we have, have this to conversation that's right 200 now. years overdue. It's so strange. But prior to that, I was doing a lot of this work because no one was having those conversations. And then thinking about my own journey with body image, I've struggled with body image and yo-yo dieting since I was like 10 or 11 years old. I've always been really obsessed about my weight. And I think growing up in the Midwest and then going to a school where I was the only like Black girl in my class, there was only two other Black kids in the school, my brother and sister, and always feeling like I was trying to reach these standards of beauty that I couldn't actually reach. And so one of the ways that I could aspire to be like what I thought was beautiful is like I could be thinner, I could be smaller. And so I just think a lot of these things have informed my life. And, you know, when I was working with clients as a trainer, primarily most of the clients I work with were women. And I would say every single client I had was struggling with body image issues and were coming to the gym with a desire to lose weight with the belief that that would fix their issues with their body. And I also did the same thing. And what I realized through weight loss is that I still had the same body image issues I started with. In a lot of ways, they were worse. And so it wasn't the weight that was the problem. It was like the system, the standards of beauty that have been created that we are trying to aspire to. White supremacy, actually, that's the culprit. Our bodies are not the problem. That's what really sent me down my own personal journey and inspired me to write this book. Because I think, unfortunately, so many of us are spending so many years of our lives focused on shrinking and obsessing about our weight. I think that all of us have very specific magic to do in the world, and it doesn't have anything to do with what we look like. And the sooner we can repair or work to repair that relationship with our bodies, I think the easier it is for us to live lives that feel nourishing and full that aren't focused on trying to be smaller. Yes. So you come from the social justice background in terms of your college and early work, and then there's kind of a pivot into fitness, which you talk about in the book. When you were studying social justice and in that place, were you connecting the dots between that and fitness culture? Yeah, no, I was definitely not connecting any dots back then. Especially when I was in college, I was like very much in diet culture, like as a participant, right? I was making no connections to the similarities and the ways in that which like white supremacy wreaks havoc in all areas, basically mm -hmm. in, in very similar ways. So it wasn't until I had been a trainer for a few years, I had been competing in powerlifting. I was the leanest I'd ever been. I was the strongest I'd ever been. And it's like, I had this moment, I call it like my rock bottom moment. I just like realized I was still so, so miserable in my body. All the things I thought were going to fix that didn't change any of it. It actually made it worse in a lot of ways. And it was then when I really started to think about body image and think about why I was struggling so much 
and starting to explore my relationship with body image. And I read The Body is Not an Apology. Mm-hmm. And that book was really transformational for me in a lot of ways. And that's when I first started thinking about the intersection, right? Or the connections between social justice and body image and that so many of the same themes apply in the same way. And then I started to think back to when I was younger, when I was nine or 10 and like looking at pictures of people that were touted as like the most beautiful people in the world and they were like thin and blonde and blue eyes and they didn't look anything like me. And starting to realize that like that's a big piece of why I was struggling because I was trying to like reach these ideals or standards of beauty and I didn't see myself represented in that. That's when I started to really put things together in my mind. And then I read Fear in the Black Body by Dr. Sabrina Strings. And I started to understand the origin of fat phobia going back to slavery. Like its very roots are in racism and white supremacy. That's when I started making the connections between social justice and fat phobia, body image, the fitness industry, the wellness industry in general. I'm thinking about this a lot right now in the context of the news about the AAP guidelines and who's championing those guidelines. So many of the people who are saying, no, this is what we need to do. We need to be prescribing diets and surgery and drugs for kids would identify themselves as liberal, as progressive, as social justice oriented, would have posted something about George Floyd and are not connecting the dots between, oh, I think racism is bad. Oh, wait, I'm actually perpetuating it in this work. It's like one of the things that I think is so important about doing the work of anti-racism, but really like taking the time to really understand it and sit with how it really shows up in our lives. Because what you're saying is true. It's like the same people who are maybe championing these things would be the same people to say like racism is bad, right? Or post a black square, Mm -hmm. talk about George Floyd, but not understanding the way that white supremacy is seeping into every area of our lives and how it's really informing our decisions in ways that are inherently racist, right? And like, that's the difficult work to really not just like read the books and take the courses, but to really sit with and understand how it's informing all the decisions that we're making. A problem you tackle very head on in the book is the way white feminism in particular, as kind of a arm of white supremacy, has really erased the original intentions as well as the original advocates for the body positivity movement. And This is so important, and yet body positivity, the way it is currently portrayed on social media, still remains this important entry point for lots of folks. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little about, you know, why staying in that entry point isn't taking the work far enough. Unfortunately, as body positivity has become more mainstream and unfortunately more commercialized, it has definitely been co-opted. By thinner body, straight size, even a lot of white women, right? And so it has definitely centered people that weren't supposed to be centered in the movement and in a lot of ways erased the creators of the movement. And that's very harmful. And also, I will say that I think body positivity is still a good point of entry for people to start thinking about their bodies differently, right? Mm -hmm. It offers people a way to even just consider that there's other options to think about their bodies than diet culture. So it still serves its purpose in a lot of ways. And there's also still problems with it. And so I think both things can be true. Also, unfortunately, a lot of body positivity, as it's become more commercialized, has also been hyper-focused on this idea of only self-love is the answer, right? Or a lot of affirmations about 
loving your body. And, you know, unfortunately, when you look under the hashtag on Instagram, you see a lot of people like showing rolls or yes. dimples or stretch marks yes. and saying, but I still love myself. And it's like, that's great. I'm happy for you. And I also want to be clear that although the movement was created and founded by fat, black and brown women, it does not mean, in my opinion, at least other people can't participate. But I think it's really important to be mindful that the focus should be on the most marginalized identities among us, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that what also happens with the body positivity space is people conflate having body image issues on a personal level. Most of us do have personal body image issues, right? But not liking your stretch marks or not liking jiggle on your thighs Mm -hmm. is very different than living in a body that is systemically oppressed. I think that people fail to realize that distinction sometimes when we start having this conversation about the problems within the space. And it's like, no, we're not saying everybody can't participate. We're saying, though, it's really important to understand the distinction and to make sure you're not taking up too much space in something that wasn't created for someone like you to be at the center of the movement. It's a balance I struggle with in my own work, obviously, as a fat creator, but also a white woman. But this sort of balance between working on your personal issues and understanding the larger narrative, I think is a really tricky one to find because people's pain is real and it's worth dealing with, of course, and also the work can't end there. And so it's another thing I really admire about your book is that you're giving readers lots of tools. There's journal questions. You're sharing your own story. There's lots of ways to do the work while reading Chrissy's book. And you make it so clear that this isn't the end point, that you're going to keep going and you give tools for thinking about, you know, acknowledging the harm you've caused and reckoning with all of that in such important ways. I want to say, too, to your point, we are all getting it wrong no matter who we are. And I think that's such an important piece to acknowledge because for me, the goal is not like that we always get it right because that's not possible. (laughs) The goal is that when we get it wrong, we can acknowledge the harm that we may have caused and work to be better going forward. That is the work. That was a real white lady way to put it of like, I'm trying to get it right. Like that's like the perfectionism and that bullshit coming up. So yes. I just brought that back because I I think we all do that, though, in some ways, right? And I think especially, you know, when white folks get it wrong, sometimes it can feel like, but I'm trying to do the right thing. And it's like, no, no, keep trying to do the right thing and recognize that this work is messy. You're going to get it wrong. And more important than getting it wrong is like, how do you rectify and do better going forward? Like getting it wrong is literally part of the process. And so When I talk in the book about personal liberation and then collective liberation, it's like, I do believe that we have to work initially on our personal liberation because when you're in the depths of diet culture and self-hate and body shame, it's not possible for you to help anyone. You barely can, you know, keep yourself afloat. And so as you start to work through these things and you're free of that energy, then you start to say, okay, how are we working to collectively dismantle systems, collectively dismantle oppression? so that people of all identities and all backgrounds can also feel freedom in their bodies and feel freedom to exist in the world because we recognize that we are all interconnected and truly none of us are free unless all of us are free. And then that goes to the point of always working towards dismantling white supremacy in our lives because at the core, white supremacy is at the root of all the issues, right? And I think with white supremacy, it's really important to remember that although some of us are affected more than others by white supremacy, of course, Ultimately, all of us are affected by it, though. And so it's like, again, when the most marginalized among us is free, we are all free here to exist. And I don't know, I've personally found it helpful, 
you know, as I was doing the work on my own stuff to understand that larger context, like that is a motivation that speaks to me when, you know, sometimes like just doing it for yourself isn't enough. Does that make sense? If I'm causing harm to others, then of course I need to get my shit in order in a way that like maybe I couldn't give myself permission to just get my shit in order for myself, you know, which is something I can unpack with my therapist later. Writing this book was also therapeutic for me in ways that I didn't even expect, right? It's like when you're a child and you're having these experiences, you feel othered and you don't have this larger understanding or context of the ways that the world works or how white supremacy works and operates. It feels very much like something is wrong with me personally when you're, you know, having that experience. And now, obviously, being older and wiser and having done a lot of this work, I can understand that there is nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the system, right? With your friend's dad making the horrible comment. Yeah, my friend's dad. Like, Like, that had nothing to do with me. (laughs) He was the problem, not me, right? Definitely the problem. But when you're eight or nine and you're like, oh, no, um, something's wrong with being Black, you can't really, like understand how to process that as a child. And so now I can look back and be like, okay, I was never the problem. And I also think though that's why it's so helpful to do this work for ourselves in terms of body image and body liberation is because we can realize that. And that's one of the things too, like going back to the body positivity space, it sometimes makes it feel like you just have to learn to love yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And when we look at it as an individual problem, the onus is on us as a person. Like, I am personally failing to be able to love my body. I am personally failing to feel comfortable in my skin. And when we can say, look at the bigger picture and say, oh no, there's just all these systems in place that are really the problem. It's not a personal issue. And that's the problem with not being able to see that the systems are the problem, whether it's about our bodies or whether it's about economics or whether it's about the criminal justice system, it puts the onus on the individual, right? The individual is the problem when in actuality, when we look at it, it's the systems that are creating the problems that we are experiencing. It's not a mm-hmm. personal failing. And so mm-hmm. absolutely, you know, learning these things really helped me to release a lot of the trauma that I had around just like circumstances growing up and socialization in general. And in the book, I even talk about, you know, like in hindsight, I, I still like I'm still processing 2020. And I mean, a lot of us are, a lot happened mm-hmm. that year, right? But one of the things I will say about 2020 is I made the most money I've ever made professionally in my life during that time, during 2020. And it's just, I felt like people were throwing money at trying to fix racism, right? Yeah. And I think that, unfortunately, there's a lot of, like, performative allyship and performative activism happening. And also just, like, a lot of knee-jerk reactions with people realizing we have to do something, we have to do it now, let's just get this person in here, let's ask this person to do this training, let's, you know, give, let's donate money. And I talk about this in the book, like, People were just like sending me, people I didn't even know were just like sending me Venmos. And I think that people just were scrambling. And I think the harmful part about that too is when you approach something like as a white person and you're saying, I need to unlearn racism or white supremacy. And then you just go into overdrive. What happens is you burn out really quickly, you know, because it is uncomfortable to start doing that work. And so I think people were really excited and then burned out really fast. And, you know, when we're talking about anti-racism, it's not like warm and fuzzy and it's not like self-improvement work, right? Right. It's actually can be really jarring in a lot of ways. And so I think people got really excited about doing the work and they burned out really quickly. And also it's realizing that when we're talking about doing the work on a day-to-day, it takes real action and it takes making difficult decisions. It takes having hard conversations. 
then I think that people, some people, unfortunately, weren't really ready to commit to what it takes to dismantle something like white supremacy. I mean, it's diet culture all over again, right? They wanted the crash diet approach. Yes, exactly. They wanted to jump in there, you know, sweat it out for 30 days. Yes, and, then, and be like, okay, we did it. And we can't actually boot camp this one. It's yes, not, it's not that's the work. best analogy I've heard. It was yeah. like a crash diet. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and I mean, it kind of makes sense. The wellness industry in particular responded that way since that's the model, right? That's what they're kind of how it operates. Yeah, so much there. Another chapter I wanted to talk about that we've, you know, kind of touched on a little bit already is the chapter on grief and mourning our bodies. This was just really beautifully written. Why do you think making space for this mourning process is so important? And how does that contribute to the larger goal of body liberation for all? Yeah, thank you. I really love that chapter too. And I think it's so important because I think you know, when you break up with diet culture and you're leaning into body liberation and repairing your relationship with your body image, the one thing I think we don't talk about enough is that the reality is we live in a world in which then privilege exists and people do treat you differently based on the way your body looks. That's just the truth. And so I think when I had been used to living in a thinner body for a long time, I grew accustomed to people responding to me based on the way I looked, right? Mm-hmm. I grew accustomed to people complimenting me on my looks or like asking me what type of workouts I did or asking me all these questions that gave me the external validation that I was seeking. And so when you inevitably decide to break it with diet culture and you decide to start, you know, for me anyways, I decided to stop obsessively counting my macros. I decided to stop working out every day of the week for multiple hours. And I decided to stop those things. And naturally what happens is your body changes. And that's just the truth. And so I think, you know, that means that people respond to your body differently. You know, you talk about like figuring out or thinking through where are you deriving your worth from? Like that's when the rubber meets the road and you have to really be like, okay, where am I deriving my worth from? And I think it's also easy to look back at old pictures of yourself and Mm -hmm. be like, oh, I loved when I looked like that. And you forget that you were actually hungry or you were actually hurting your body. Yes, I was starving. Right, Right. you forget those details, yeah. And so I think it's so important when you have those moments to really remember where was I mentally, emotionally, physically, what space was I in? And then I just remember I was in a terrible, terrible place, right? And so none of that was really worth it. But I do think it's important to give yourself the time and the space to grieve that. And also on top of that, I don't even know if I touched on this in the book, is that other people will even comment that your body is changing. So it's like besides you trying to grieve it for yourself, then you have this impact of like what other people may be commenting. And so I think it's just important to acknowledge that, you know, it's not the case for everyone, but for some of us, we will feel like we have lost something in some way or we've, Mm -hmm. you know, changed in ways that maybe we weren't anticipating. And I think when we're talking about breaking up with diet culture, the benefits are always more than what you lose, but there is a sense of loss sometimes. And I just think it's important to be honest about that. When we're naming it in this larger context too, it's important to be honest about that you're losing privilege, that you're losing power, you know, you're gaining other things. It's better, but also you had this privilege. And now you don't have it. Right. And I think that's why it's also so important, I think, for all of us as we're going through our own journey to like really hold ourselves with compassion. And I say this again, especially for people with more marginalized identities, when you feel like maybe being thin is one of the only privileges that you have, 
it feels even harder to let go of that, right? When you're feeling like that's the one place where I feel like I have some power yeah. or some proximity to privilege or proximity to whiteness. And so now I'm supposed to let go of that too. And so I think that's why it's like holding so much compassion and kindness and grace with ourselves for all of the emotions because there's just, it's very nuanced and there's lots mm-hmm. of layers to it. I also really loved, this is like a slightly later note, I guess, from morning, <laughs> the chapter on love and dating and body liberation yeah. was just fantastic. Yes. So I got married very young. I got married when I was 22 and we were together until I was 33. We went to high school together. So we already knew each other from high school. We started dating right after high school. So I was basically with this person from like 19 to 33. So that was pretty much, you know, my entire like formative years were spent with the same person. And so then when we divorced, I was like, oh no, now I have to date. And so I think it's already scary dating when you haven't like literally dated, dated pretty much as an adult ever. Right. Like I just haven't dated at all. So when that's the like last date was scary. prom. Right. You know, I haven't had a date since prom. So that's a long time. So that's already scary. And then... Completely relate, by the way. I've been with my partner since high school as well. So, okay. Yeah. Complete, so you get this, it. This, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, I just imagine next week you have to start dating. You don't want to think about it, right? And I'm heterosexual, so I date men. And it's even scarier. I just think it's just really, if I'm being honest, it's just scarier. And then I'm in a different body than I was. It's like one thing to be comfortable in your own body. Of course, I feel great myself. But then you, again, going back to this point that I realized I live in a world in which fat phobia exists. People have feelings about bodies that are the same as mine. And um, it can be really triggering, I think. And I think that it really made like body issue images like bubble to the surface a little bit in a way that I wasn't expecting Mm -hmm. because I feel so comfortable with myself. And now suddenly I'm like, oh, what if someone thinks this or what if they think that? You know, thank goodness for therapists, right? Ultimately for me, what it comes down to is this is the body that I reside in. And I am not interested in someone who has an issue with it. And more importantly, I am not interested in someone who is with me because of the way I look. Because Mm. as we know, bodies change and they're always going to be changing, right? So this is the iteration of the body I have today. Next year might be different. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to be tied romantically to someone who is with me because of the way I look, because bodies change. That is one thing that I can guarantee will happen. Just going back to remembering that for me, that my looks are the least interesting thing about me. That's my personal belief system. And so the right person will understand and align with my values. And if they don't, then they're not the right person. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying that's an easy practice because it's not, but right. it's the reality when it comes to dating and love and relationships. I am not willing to bend my boundaries on that at all because I will just end up miserable and I'm not willing to do that. And I'm so at peace with myself and I'm so at peace with who I am that I would not allow anybody in my life that is not going to allow me to maintain that same level of peace and self-love and like really cherishing the person that I am. I love that. I hope lots of listeners are saying like, yes, to know that is your bottom line and to know that that is not a place you're ever going to compromise again feels like such a gift of doing this work. Yeah, I think and uh, dating is just, it's hard. I mean, I can imagine having that as the bottom line feels like it narrows the pool a little bit. It does. It does. <laughs> a lot of folks, especially when you date straight men, who are yes. not going to share that bottom line. So, yeah. And like the whole app culture that we're in now is like oh my so gosh, counter yes. to that. Like, oh man. 
it definitely narrows the pool. But I saw this really great commentary and it's something that I've really embraced in my life. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly it. This person explained it as like having multiple streams of joy, right? And that like dating and relationships is one stream, but there's so many streams of joy. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, I like I've created and always continue to cultivate a life that feels really full and joyous. And if I meet a person who understands my boundaries and fits into that and can add more joy, then awesome. But if not, I have so many streams of joy that I feel so nourished in a day-to-day basis. And so, yeah, I'm just working to create and cultivate more of that in my life. Oh my gosh, I could not love that more. Thank you for sharing that. All right, well, speaking of joy, we wrap up the podcast with a segment I call Better for Your Burnt Toast, where we give a recommendation. So Chrissy would love to know what better you have for us today. Oh my gosh. So I, speaking of things cultivating joy, I wanted to cultivate more creative joy in my life. So I started taking pottery classes <gasps> and I am loving it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about this. It looks so fun. It's so fun. I'm not good yet, but I've only been to four classes, but I <laughs> love it. It's been just so much fun. Like I'm to work with clay and to like, you know, have this thing where you're going week after week and like just trying to improve your skills a little bit better and like, just it's been so fun and I ended up taking a class that was like for people of color and it ended up being all women and it's been so fun like it's just been such a fun class and I'm like super enjoying it I'm going tonight so it's something that I want to keep going and now speaking of TikTok I'm like following all these people that are like really good and I'm like watching their videos and (laughs) just imagining how much of a master I'm going to be in the future and it's been so great I'm like loving it so much. This is amazing. That sounds like the greatest use of TikTok I could imagine to follow (laughs) potters and watch their talents. It's incredible. Um, And I love the idea of like the regular class and having that, like cultivating that community space. So powerful. That's really, really cool. My better this week is a little more mundane, but it is giving me a lot of joy. I have just gotten on the super cubes trend. Okay, you have to tell me more. I don't know what this is. These have been very popular on like food Instagram for a while. And I was like very suspect of them. They are these like teal blue silicone, like they look like giant ice cube trays, but each cube is like holds two cups of something. So it's like four big cubes and it looks like it's about the size of an ice cube tray. And the idea is like when you're making soups or pasta sauce, which I make a lot, or like chicken stock or whatever, you can freeze them in these individual cubes. And like it is just like reduce this like hassle I didn't realize was such a hassle in my life because normally whenever I make like and especially in the winter I make a lot of like once a week I make a big batch of sauce pasta sauce and like I often make stock like if we roast a chicken I'll make a stock and I'm always like scrounging around for containers that I can like get it in that will like survive in the freezer and you know you're like using the old deli containers but the lids are all like snapped and you know, it's just like a thing where I tried to like freeze things in Ziploc bags and then the bag burst and it's, it's, it's just like a hassle. It's not a trauma. It's like there's worse problems in the world, but it becomes like this annoyance of this thing that like I want my cooking routine to be more pleasure based than that. So I finally was like, you know what? I'm going to buy some of these and see if they're as great as everyone says. And they're better, which is a little annoying because again, it's a very trendy Instagram item that I normally would not want to get behind. But 
it's great having like a dedicated thing for freezing stuff. So then you're not using up like your good Tupperware. You know, it's like annoying when your good Tupperware is yeah. in the freezer for like a month. Okay. This is <laughs> something I did not realize how much brain space I had <laughs> devoted to. <laughs> like until I solved this problem, I was like, wow, this was actually really stressing me out. Yeah. And so having the dedicated containers and then when you want to use what's in them, you can just pop them out because the silicone is stretching. Oh, that's so awesome. So you just like so you just, pop, like, pop them. Out. There's like two cups block of pasta sauce and you can like just defrost it in a bowl or just defrost it right in the pan and you're good to go. It's very clever. So I feel like it's a very like pro-capitalism recommendation, but sometimes they have some good ideas and this was one of them. And yeah. And I guess also my recommendation is just like things that cause mild annoyance, but like on a weekly basis, it is actually worth taking a minute to solve for yourself because now that doesn't stress me out anymore, and that's nice. I don't cook much, but if I did, you would have sold me because that does sound <laughs> awesome. No, I'm serious. It sounds like exactly what you need, right? And you can yeah. just like pop it out. It's a really good problem solver. I don't always love an Instagram ad, but sometimes they're right. I mean, the algorithm is freaky that way. So super cubes. We will link to those in the transcript for anyone who wants to join that Instagram bandwagon with me. Of course, not sponsored, just personally a fan, have spent my own dollars on them. So, so Chrissy, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Tell listeners where we can follow you and what can we do to support your work? Awesome. Thank you for having me. This is such a great conversation. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. It's all the same. I am Chrissy King. My website is chrissyking.com. And of course, you can support me by ordering the book. It's out now and it's available anywhere books are sold. Amazing. Congratulations again, and thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks, and you'll keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.